and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast for Monday, June 5th. Welcome to June, everybody. Welcome to Tour de France tune-up race season. We are in the middle of the Criterium du Dauphiné as of right now. Uh, we're recording this the afternoon of, well, the evening, if you're in Andorra, of Sunday. We've already seen one stage, but we're going to kind of give you a preview of the rest of the race as well. It's going to be lots of Dauphiné talk today, and I can't wait to get into it with my always entertaining cycling analyst extraordinaire co-host, Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, good to see you again. Good to see you too, Dane. Always excited to talk about the Brofiné. The, the bro the bro race for bros. and uh <laughs> joining us again this time from very far away she used to be not that far. i mean montana is actually still pretty far away but now she's really far away and yet she's staying up late into her evening to podcast with us i'm so excited abby mickey former pro current host of the wheel talk podcast great to see you hello thank you so much for having me happy to be back of course all right, so we've got lots of racing at the Dauphiné to talk about. Some of it has already happened. We're going to look a little bit ahead. There was a race in the mud in Kansas this weekend as well. We'll do a little bit of talking about that. You know, we mostly stick to the road, but Cosmo has thoughts. And whenever he has thoughts, I want to give him the forum to express himself uh, and to voice his opinions. And, of course, the Tour de Suisse is coming up as well. So lots to talk about. With the Giro in the rear view, now we get to look ahead to the Tour. Everything that's going on right now, I think it's going to be viewed through the lens of the Tour de France, and that gets me pretty excited to talk about bike racing. I'm also excited to tell you, uh, as, as usual, I'm excited to tell you, and we're going to keep telling you this, that if you're enjoying this podcast, you should go sign up at escapecollective.com slash join. Become a member. We now have monthly memberships starting at uh, just... Eleven ninety nine USD, which is awesome, or you could save some money and be a be a member annually, and you keep podcasts like this one going. You keep the website alive. If you like our analysis, if you like the news, if you like the tech, if you like the Ian stories, I don't even know how to classify those. Uh, yeah, go on over this to escapecollective slash join, become a member. And if you do, you'll become part of a pretty cool group of people. We really do have a great community. And on that note, while I'm talking about our members, let me switch gears slightly to kick off a little bit of member appreciation. We wanted to give a shout out to some of our lifers, the people who signed up with the, a pretty hefty commitment from the beginning. We said when we launched the site and the podcast network that we were going to thank you on our podcasts, and we're going to start doing that now. So I'm going to kick it off here on the on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast with our first few thank yous to our lifers. Here we go. Robert Merkel. Robert, thank you for being a lifer. Jordan Weiss. Thanks for being a lifer. Rebecca Hartman. Thank you for being a lifer. We appreciate you. Rick Cox. Thanks for being a lifer. And David McCook. Thanks for being a lifer. We appreciate you. We appreciate all of you. It's pretty awesome that you committed to be part of the community so early, and uh, it means a lot to us. So thanks to all of you, and yeah, we're going to be thanking lifers here on this and uh, the other podcasts on the network for the next few weeks. All right, let's get into the show. Let's get into the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. Let's be pretty serious about bike racing, starting with the action at the Dauphiné. Let's just start with the first stage today, because the race has already kicked off, 
as of Sunday when we're recording. And by the time I get this out on Monday, depending on when you listen, you'll probably have, we'll have actually already seen two stages. Uh, but today's stage actually offered plenty of interesting things to talk about because, well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, a breakaway rider, Rune Herregotz of Intermarché Circus Wanti, who's a pretty good rider. It was uh, sixth overall at the Tour of Norway earlier this week, well, last week now. Almost made it. Almost. I mean, I don't know that I've seen... It, it was one of the latest catches I've seen of a rider in a long time, and it really looked like he might get there, but Christoph Laporte was the one who dashed his hopes with a little help from Jonas Vingago, providing a lead-out. And i got to say, although I was pretty bummed to see Herregots get caught at the line, I was a pretty amazing finale all around. Lots of different ways. Cool for Christoph Laporte and just really cool that Jonas Vingago was even involved. Involved in kind of a sketchy finish. Like, it was not well organized. There were a lot of guys running into each other on wet pavement. Um, there was a, kind of a whole descent, I think, where, where, where Harrahots really gained his big advantage was kind of coming down the slippery descent where I think none of the GC teams really wanted to, to take the risk. Um, but yeah, it was... It was pretty rowdy for a uh, Tour de France kind of tune-up race. They, people were taking it seriously. It was cool to see. Yeah, obviously, Vingigo coming into the race was the pre-race favorite by a substantial margin, a margin that you don't often see for a stage race because there's so many things that can go wrong in a stage race. Uh, but, but he was very much the favorite coming in for the overall. Uh, but to, to be up there in the final kilometer of a, yeah, like you said, a hectic sprint, I mean, I... I I think this is just a really smart play from Jonas Vingago. It's a risk. Obviously, it's a risk for the defending Tour de France champion to be up there in a finish like this. Uh, and any, I mean, even when, when he was up there, there were riders that were, you know, pretty close around him where it was, yeah, it was definitely hectic. It was hectic. a lot of contact. It was, definitely, it was Yeah, it was, there was contact. Argy-bargy, yeah. you might say. And at the end of the day, I think it's worth it because he proves to his teammates, guys like Christophe Laporte, that he's there for them whenever they need him. And that's going to help them be there for him come July at the Tour de France. And we've seen this specifically for Christophe Laporte before. Uh, I, I use my favorite feudalism analogy during the classics when Laporte supported Wat van Aert. And it's just nice to see. I think it's a smart play from Jonas Vingago. It's a risk, but he's taking this risk to, to keep his vassal happy. And, you know, going into July, you've got to think that, that Christophe Laporte will be happy to repay the favor uh, when, you know, they're riding in the flats and he's the one that's got to put down the power. He can look back and say, wow, that guy, uh, that guy helped me out not very long ago. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repay the favor, just like he did with Art. Uh Meanwhile, fast finish, too. Just impressive finish from, from Laporte. I feel like it's um, maybe more of just a, like shaking out the legs a little bit before the week to come because, I mean, Dane, we talked a bit in the preview about the importance of coming into this race like a little bit undercooked. And I feel like this stage in particular, it's an interesting one because it was pretty high at altitude actually to start out the race. And um, I think Vinegard w- would have been really interested in kind of seeing where the legs are, but most most importantly just staying upright and like you said the finish was pretty hectic pretty hairy coming into that 
Yeah, I guess there's a lot to be gained, really, because, yeah, you're, you're testing out the legs. There was a ton of climbing on the day. I mean, it ended up in a, in a reduced sprint, but there was a ton of climbing. It behooves you to stay up at the front throughout the stage. And then even in the sprint finish, in terms of the safety of it all, being up there, going hard, is a, you know, seems about as safe as being farther back in the peloton where you might get caught up in a crash. Yeah, I mm-hmm. completely agree. I think we saw a lot of... Um... I think we saw a lot of Jumbo Visma kind of testing a little bit of their their mountain lead out. We saw them uh, with, I don't know, a lap or two to go, getting to the front, kind of taking over from uh, Sudal Quickstep and really putting the, the peloton in some pain. I'm not, you know, thinning it out like you'd see on a or category climb, but definitely doing work and, and keeping things kind of thinned out, looking pretty strong, like a team that was was there to to make it as hard as they could on a stage that wasn't on paper super selective. Yeah, it really did feel like they came into this race. I mean, w- yes, they have the favorite. And they also came into the race knowing they were going to be in a similar situation at the Tour de France where teams are going to look to them to take up the race. Uh, teams are going to look to them and to UAE. But I think primarily they're going to look to Jumbo Visma because Jumbo Visma has the strong team and, and they are the defending champions at the Tour. And it's as if they came into the Dauphiné and said, yeah, let's just let's ride like that. Let's, let's get, it, uh, get our practice in now. As if they need practice. I mean, they, they win races all the time. But... Let's let's tune up everybody. It's not just Yanis Vingago tuning up his climbing legs. It's the whole thing is getting tuned up for the tour. And they really rode this stage like they own the race. It, it looked a little different than the Giro, where I think they came in with obviously some late replacements. And, I mean, by the end of the race, they had it pretty dialed. But in the beginning, there were, there were some iffy moments. And it seems kind of like the opposite of that. And might also make a good, you know, little little bit of sponsor sizzle reel footage. Because uh, uh, they're going to need a new one coming up pretty soon. Yes, Yumbo apparently getting out of the sponsorship game uh, at some point in the near future. Which you know they've been around for a while. It's not like I, I remember really appreciating Belkin, the router company, when they stepped in to help save the Blanco team, which whose kit I loved, by the way. And then Belkin left after a year, and it, it was. I think I ended up disliking Belkin more, and like net at the end of everything because they left so early. I feel like Yumbo, they've been around a while and they're, they're facing some interesting things behind the scenes. Uh, we've talked about on the placeholders. So yeah, they're going to be getting out of the sponsorship game. Got to get the, the name on the, well, it's a little bit different from like the small Italian teams that get into the breakaways, the doomed breakaways because the Yumbo Visma wins races all the time. So I would imagine that some sponsor out there is going to be happy to step up and take over for the supermarket that's going to be getting out of this business sooner or later. But yeah, they, they definitely bossed the opening stage, and I would imagine they're going to boss the rest of the race. But let's talk about that. Let's, uh, let's look ahead a little bit and, and talk about what's ahead. Because even by the time you listen to this, while there will be then two stages done, there will still be a, a very much the, the sort of the GC focus of the race is, is a little farther ahead. So it's a race that has a ton of hills. Basically, every single day is hilly, at least, uh, which makes me somewhat surprised that there are a handful of sprinters here. Uh, Sam Bennett, Dylan Grunewagen. Uh, Bennett, Bennett has shown an ability to get over some climbs in the past, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's not, not going to be easy. Didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's Sorry. true. That's true. Yeah, Bennett and Grunewagen clearly struggled today with the first stage. And as I said, like it is at altitude, so it's not like it's just a hilly day. It's like a hilly day that's higher than they would be used to 
starting off a week-long stage race. Well, so stages two and three, one of which you probably will have seen by the time you're listening to this, or maybe it'll be finishing as you're listening, depending on how quickly I get it up as an editor, so putting pressure on myself here. Uh, They might be sprint finishes, but they might be reduced sprint finishes, much like today was. Uh, The uphill finish on stage two is going to be hard for anybody. And then stage three has a late climb. So hills galore, really. Just hills, 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 and more hills at the Dauphiné. Stage four is the one that's really going to kind of bring out the the GC contenders because it is a time trial, and it's a pretty long one for a race of just eight days. Uh, I feel like if you have a T... I'm a big fan of having TTs in all stage races, but 31K is a long way to go in eight days, uh, and that could make a pretty significant impact on the GC. I thought it was interesting how the time trial is set up. It, it starts with a, there's a little uphill and then a pretty enormous downhill, like a long way uh, kind of gaining, I wouldn't say enormous downhill like an alpine descent, but a long time riding downhill, I think basically 10, 12K. Uh, and that, as someone who is not maybe so good at pacing himself in time trials, uh, it seems like it could catch some people out because you get so heroic when you're pedaling downhill and then you have to go uphill again. Uh, you don't have to always, but in this case it does finish with a, a kind of gradual climb. And uh, I think some people could get hurt there metaphorically. I don't think it's a particularly technical descent either. So I think it'll be a, a power race. And although there is some climbing here, I think the riders who are just good at time trials generally are going to thrive in this TT, which hopefully will set up a sort of interesting situation with the GC. We say this every time, but hopefully the, the time trial experts will kind of get a little bit ahead and that, that will force the climbers to attack later in the race. We say arrow is everything, but arrow is actually everything. For this <laughs> yeah, they're going to be going fast enough that it very much is. After that, more hills. Hills, hills, more hills. That's really what this race is all about. For uh, stages five and six, which are not easy, uh, Five has a late climb that's quite steep, and I think it could make things kind of interesting. And then six ends on like a one-two punch of a climb, and then seven and eight are the really the real heart of the of the GC battle is going to happen. Stage seven, they go over the Madeleine, uh, the Col de Moulard, and finish at Col de la Croix de Fer, which are all pretty amazing, challenging. Uh, some might even say iconic climbs, and I think they're going to really make or break the whole GC battle. That's stage seven. Which, uh, by the way, the, the Col de la Croix de Fer, they finished at over 2,000 meters, which is a lot. Um, although, for those of us who have lived in Colorado, <laughs> not that much. But for them, it'll be a lot. And I think that's going to have a pretty significant impact, just the altitude. Uh, and also, we just haven't seen a whole lot of high-altitude racing. That's one of the things that you don't get a lot of outside of the Grand Tours, particularly in the early season. Most of the state, like the Basque Country, for instance, uh, they don't really go to that high altitude very often. Uh, so this will be a pretty uh, big opportunity for some of the GC stars to really get their uh, opportunity to shine in altitude, where you know, things are just totally different. Everything changes at altitude. And then stage eight, another really hard day with a really up and down finish. There's four categorized climbs in the second half of the stage, and they're all, well, well there's one Cat 2, but then there's also an or category, and there's two uh, cat wants to finish things out uh, near Grenoble. I was going to say that finish climb is bananas. Like it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's almost 2K that averages 14%. Averages? Yeah, it's like the length-ish of the Mur de Huy, but like way steeper. 
This is uh, this is this is like get the climbing bike off the top of the of the car and switch over kind of stuff. Like that is, and it's the last. It's the end of the race, right? Like, the, there's gonna be unless someone is way ahead on GC. I feel like it could. I feel like you might see people waiting and targeting this as the as the defining GC gap. It's just I can't. That's so steep. <laughs> yeah, the nice thing about climb like this is that like it's almost impossible for like riders to finish on the same time. So there's even if the even if the gaps are like one or two seconds, we're at least going to get probably some gaps there. Uh, it's it's pretty hard to finish together when you're going up a double digit ascent, and that's coming after the Col de Port, which is a Cat One climb. They will have already gone over the you know the Ore category climb not that long before then. So it's a really climber friendly finish to the race. But again, there is that time trial. So I think overall we're going to see, yeah, the the sort of traditional stage racing stars contending riders who can both time trial and climb which is why coming into this race Jonas Vingago was such a heavy favorite because he can do both he's one of the best climbers in the world and he's an elite time trialist they're really it's it's actually kind of interesting I, I don't know I can't remember a stage race where the favorite was so heavily favored by the book he's going in uh he was odds on and Adam Yates was pretty far back there um and yet, like, crashes happen. I mean, it was raining today. Obviously, COVID happens as well. Uh, th- things can very much change the equation, but looks like, to me, Jonas Vingago is the favorite, and his team certainly uh, playing the race like they know that. Uh, Abby, we talked about this when I wrote the race preview. The big question is whether he's coming in a little bit undercooked. And and maybe, I don't know, for those who didn't read the preview or also maybe just to get Cosmo's uh, take on this as well, what do you think in terms of the, the strategy? Is it a good idea to come into a race still a month out uh, at close to 100%? Or should he be? You know, would, would it be smart to be you know, pretty, pretty uh, far off still and, and, and still be building? I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons why I always kind of side-eye these, these preview, Tour de France preview races, uh, because there is that question of, you know, racing to win them versus racing to get ready for the Tour de France. And there's a lot of overlap there. But at the same time, I, I can think of in the past occasions where you, you've you seen GC riders targeting the Tour who are kind of like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll ride hard. I'll finish in the top 10, but I'm not going to try and win this. I feel like it's kind of gone in waves. There was a lengthy stretch during the Sky years where it was the thing to do for Sky's designated rider to come to one of these tune-up races and win them. Uh, Wiggins won the Dauphiné before he won the Tour. Froome won the Dauphiné before he won three of his four uh, Tours de France. Uh, I th- Garen Thomas won the, the Dauphiné before he won the Tour de France, I think. And then I think Bernal won the Suisse, the other big tune-up race, before he won the Tour. So... There was a lengthy stretch where it was very much that way. Uh, that said, over the past few years, the last, uh, yeah, the last three winners of the Dauphiné, Daniel Martinez, Richie Port, Primoz Roglic, all of them very, very good riders. Particularly the last two were, you know, Grand Tour type riders, and Martinez may yet be that. Uh, but they kind of gotten away from having the the Tour de France winner win this race. That said, Jonas Vingago did finish second to his teammate last year so maybe he's trying to get back on the back into that swing of things where he uh follows the sky model it was something that lance did 
as well, uh, winning the Dauphiné before winning the Tour. I, I guess he didn't win either of them, but at the time he won them. Uh, and Indurain did it as well, I think, won some Dauphinés before his Tour. So kind of comes and goes in waves, and we'll find out where we are, I guess, pretty soon. It looks like actually for this year, like in terms of coming into the Dauphiné undercooked, that the start of this year's tour is a lot harder than previous years. So I think maybe there's a chance that Vinigo is not as undercooked as you might think. And obviously we'll see it over the week. But I think, yeah, in ter- just comparing to other years, the tour is going to be from the gun versus like a couple days of sprint stages before like maybe a GC stage and then not really anything. And then the GC finally heats up in the second week. It's going to be a really different tour this year, but also I think it's really interesting to look at the start list for the Dauphiné versus tour de Swiss, because it, although Vinigo is like the number one favorite going into the Dauphiné, I feel like tour de Swiss has a lot more, potential GC contenders for the tour there. So I think it's, it's really interesting. And obviously like, uh, Tade is not at either of these races, which makes a big difference for sure. Uh, but it might also make a big difference for him. I mean, it, I don't think it helps that he's not going to have the opportunity to test his legs. Uh, if it, if that's not something that helped, then people wouldn't do it. And they, you know, constantly every year, the, the big, big stars come back to these races. Um, but that's a really good point about the tour being harder in the early goings which, by the way, will hopefully keep things interesting from the gun, uh, which will be nice after the Giro, where like there were so many sprint stages early, and then we, we had to look to the likes of someone who may be lurking in the background right now, listening to us to keep things interesting. Uh, yeah. But uh, by the way, thanks, Toms, for keeping that interesting, uh, the Giro. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like... Um, anytime there's a race where the there's GC days in the first couple days, I just think back to the 2020 or 2021 Giro Donna when it the first three days was like it was like a I, I think the first day was a TTT, the second day was a was a mountain stage, and the third day was like a mountain time trial, and SC Works swept like everything, and then it was just done. Like the race was just done, and there was yeah, like, I definitely seven more days of racing and it was just like well the gc is completely wrapped up so that's a risk for sure i think that the happy medium is what i I would hope it's what we're going to see with the first few stages of the tour where there's some racing in the Basque country where it's hilly and has the potential for gc battles and i mean at the end of the day maybe there's only going to be a few seconds separating the gc riders but at least they'll be there you know along with some of the punchy riders and some of the breakaway types uh rather than just having like I don't know, a 250-kilometer sprint stage, which the, the Tour has done some of that in the past. Um, I got a really awesome visit into the Chartres Cathedral during one of those stages, so I can't complain too hard, but also it was like the most boring stage that anybody had ever seen. Uh, so, Yeah, in terms of the Dauphiné, I feel like it's interesting to talk about the other like potential GC contenders other than Vinigo. Like we, we touched on it a bit in your preview, Dane, but there's like a handful of kind of others um and a couple of those are super interesting like Jai Hindley is going for his first tour bid and so he's at the Dauphiné prepping for that we've got Ben O'Connor who finished on the podium last year and I think is going to have a really hard time repeating that success this year with the time trial being as long as it is and like obviously Adam Yates being kind of the second top favorite for the race miles below Vinny Gogo? 
the Yates situation, I, I'm really curious to see. He's been really good. Well, he was really good at, at Rumundy. I, I think he gives UAE a really, really good kind of hidden card to play. I feel like on most teams, he would be not so under the radar uh, at, at the tour, but I'm pretty sure he's going to go into the tour being pretty under the radar because of Tadej Pogacar. Everybody's going to be looking at Tadej Pogacar. And that has worked out really well that everyone is looking at one rider for that rider's sort of second-in-command for many of the past Tours de France. I'm thinking of Jonas Vingago. I'm thinking of Egan Bernal, Garen Thomas. I think that Yates maybe will not go into the Tour uh, under the radar after this week because I think he's probably riding pretty well. I mean, he was in at Romandie. He showed in the time trial that he was in great shape in that time trial. And that's something that he's he's been a, a pretty good time trialist for... The past few years, he he really built on that after after the after his first few years in the World Tour, he kind of improved a lot in the time trial. And I'm thinking that if he can show in this TT that he's, you know, got that uh, under under control, and, and I'm thinking that riding at UAE may help him with that um, because they tend to be pretty good. Yeah, I think that's going to be a, a big signpost for what we can expect from him at, at the tour, and uh, and at, at the same time. Th- He's a rider for whom I think a, a Dauphiné win in and of itself, regardless of Tour de France prep, would be a big deal. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that he will be you know, gunning for the overall win here, regardless of, of his Tour prep. Uh, some of the other riders that we should be watching this week, the one that I'm most interested in is one that I'm not necessarily thinking is a top-flight favorite, not even like a three-star favorite for the race. But it, it's Egan Bernal. I, I think he is maybe the most interesting rider in this race. He's back back to racing after his horrible crash, uh, and he put up a top 10 overall at Tour de Romney. That was his first top 10 in a World Tour race since his incident. Went on to Hungary, and he crashed there, still finished the top 10 overall, and he looked good today, uh, finishing 21st, kind of up there in the hectic finish. I think he's taken this race pretty seriously, and at the same time, he gets to kind of ride a little bit, um, and yeah, under the radar is not going to happen for Egon Bernal, but he gets to have a little bit of cover because Daniel Martinez and Carlos Rodriguez uh, are going to, I think, take a lot of the headlines. But I can't wait to see what he does in this race because I think it will be really good for the sport if he can get back to the level that we've seen him be at before. And yes, he did win the Tour de France now four years ago, but he's still only 26 years old, which if that's not young, then that really bums me out because that's eight years younger than me. Uh, but I do think he's got potential, and I think this is going to be a big opportunity for him ahead of the tour where Ineos may or may not be taking him. They haven't announced for certain yet, but I believe he is sort of in the long list and expected to go. We'll see. Um, I would advise everyone to go over to firstcycling.com and look at Egon Renault's, like headshot because it's really funny. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's a great shot. Is he pointing at himself or the logo? Does it matter? No. It's just good. It's just good. I like it. Hopeful. I'm hopeful for him. I want to be impartial, but I'm also really rooting for him to get back to his best. I think it's just Colombian cycling needs it. I don't don't think there's any any compromising of journalistic integrity, hoping for for him to come back. Yeah. I feel like if it's coming back from an injury, it's okay, right? That's okay to root for that. Totally. Yeah. 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 A uh, couple of other English-speaking big names. Matteo Jorgensen 
deserves some love. Most people speak English. You're talking about native, native. That's a good point. That's a great point. From the Anglosphere. (laughs) Native English speakers. Matteo Jorgensen, I'm pretty sure he's a native English speaker. I'm really looking forward to him here in this race as well. And I think Movistar's got a heck of a good team. Uh, And it's a team that, and we talked about this again uh, in the preview, but for those who didn't read, I really want this team to use Enric Maas and Matteo Jorgensen to their full effect as sort of potential attackers and, you know, the two-pronged attack of the of the Movistar years gone by, uh, which I just love, even if it's so often failed spectacularly. I really want to see it again. Um, and Jorgensen looks great. Enric Maas is the team's big, you know, star hope uh, for the Tour de France this year, so he needs to be in good shape. He's got to prove he's in good shape. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what they can do. All right, that's, uh, I think that's enough for the Dauphiné for now. We'll obviously talk a lot more about it next week when we are here talking after the Dauphiné is, un- is finished and when the Tour de Suisse is underway. Meanwhile, not far from where I'm recording this podcast, well, it's actually still pretty far because Colorado's wide. Uh, over in Kansas, there was a gravel race. Some might say the biggest one in the world, depending on what you consider a gravel race. I don't know. Strada mm. Bianca is kind of a gravel race too, but whatever. Unbound. After a very muddy afternoon, there was there was rain. It was just gross conditions. Keegan Swenson won the men's 200-mile race, and Carolyn Schiff won the women's 200-mile race. We're not generally going to do a whole lot of gravel coverage on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast, just because we're not. That's just not what we focus on, and we don't want to talk about things that we're not experts on. But Cosmo... Yeah, so I, I would love the opportunity to complain about gravel racing, but... He has thoughts, and I actually kind of... We talked a little bit before the show... Uh, about some of these thoughts, and I actually kind of agree. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about Unbound Cosmo. Well, we're not it, gravel isn't serious, so why would we? Why <laughs> that's would right. We yeah, you can't. It, it's that's the it's the spirit. It's fun. It would be against the spirit, wouldn't it? That's why that's why they don't keep track of time or anything like that, or have rules against aero bars. Why would you have? Well, rules they do now. Just out there to have fun. Oh, they do. Oh man, they're they're adding regulations. No, crazy. How about that? It's almost like those. They voted. <laughs> I know. It's just, it's very like people flock to gravel because they're like, oh, it's not all regulated and stuffy like road racing. And then almost immediately they're like, wait, we need rules like road racing has to make this safer and more fair. Then as more road racers come in, they start. Well, I mean, it's not even road racers. It's just, that's the the reason road cycling is the way it is right now. It's because a hundred years ago, everything was like gravel unbound. And they were like, you know what we should do is make it so that if somebody flats, they're not immediately out of the race. Like we have a bunch of spare bikes to put them on so they can continue to compete in the event as obviously very foreseeable mechanical incidents happen. Um, and, you know, they prepare the roadway. They clean the road to make sure it's not full of glass so that so that flats are less of a factor. And, you know, they check the road to make sure it's not going to be a giant mud puddle for I don't know how many miles. Like it's just... It's silly to see all this stuff happening when it already happened 100 years ago. There was, uh, specifically, by the way, for those who don't know, this year's race had so much mud. I mean, go look up videos of people just demudding their drivetrains and a couple of contenders just out of the race entirely because of mud or flats, which, again, that that is unbound or that has been unbound for so long. I think the big, uh, the differentiator, though, the, the, the thing that makes it tricky is one of the reasons people love gravel, they love it as a pursuit they can do themselves. Gravel riding is so fun. 
and I think all of us here probably agree that we like to ride our bikes on less less smooth surfaces sometimes. It's a lot of fun. And I think that the Unbound and, and basically all, all of the kind of growing gravel races really draw a lot of people who love riding on that sort of terrain. At the same time, the competition aspect of racing and especially the viewing of others doing it, that's a big part of this, are generally made better by many of the sort of things that were innovations in road cycling a century ago. And I, I think there are also uh, safety concerns. I think a lot of gravel races are just a guy who knows some dirt roads being like, we're going to have a gravel race. Uh, I know at one of the races out here in the East, there was a, there was a death this summer from a, I think a, a rider was in a relatively unregulated group on the road, like with no, no safety car or anything like that. And, did a bad line around a corner and got hit by an, an oncoming truck, which is extremely sad, but I think also pretty preventable. You know, road racing has these rolling enclosures. They have yellow line, yellow line rules. And even at a very serious event that is by most accounts, pretty well run like unbound, you had the men's 200 mile group sprinting to the finish in, in between hundred mile finishers, just, you know, a bunch of schmoes like, like me, and it just seems like it's bad and you probably should figure out a better way to do that because, you know, yes, usually you see someone go solo and that's fine. Um, you can, one rider can negotiate a bunch of doofers, but if you end up with a group of say 10 or 20, it's going to become a real problem. And people, there's a high potential for catastrophe when you get a lot of bodies sprinting, coming up, passing slow, slower riders as you do it. Yeah. I think that's actually just a really perfect example of kind of that dichotomy of trying to make a race that's both enjoyable for the people doing it and then also trying to build this product that might be marketable to fans just trying to watch the pros and those two things are very hard to balance sometimes and, and it's hard to do both of them really well I, obviously this is the, i mean i think it's the biggest gravel race in the world and it's it's done a very good job it's done as good of a job as i think it maybe could have done so far but they're yeah I just don't know how sustainable that is. It's it's tricky. It's tricky is what it is. I mean, they're just going to have to make two-day events if they want it to be competitive and also an, uh, a participation thing for, you know, everyday riders. They, like, they have it all on one day right now, but that's not a sustainable method if they want it to be, you know, if they want world tour pros like Larry Warbass showing up to their event, they're going to have to separate the two. Which, again, is just kind of an innovation that road cycling has done for a long time. Like, have the Fondo before, <laughs> have the whatever before. Adopt uh, the tour. Uh, and that's been around in road cycling for quite a long time. But, again, I think that's a tricky thing for the organizers to decide on because I think a lot of people love knowing that they might be able to finish their 100-miler next to Keegan Swenson or whatever. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a really awesome thing to have as a participant in the, in the event. I'm, as... Not that I will, will be a participant, but whenever I'm in a road race and I am dropped from my field and there is a faster field coming in, I'm not like, oh, cool, maybe I can be at the finish line near someone who's actually winning their race. I'm almost always like, I'm going to get out of the way uh, and try and avoid negatively impacting this, uh, the, the integrity of this finish behind me. I agree. I would say that might be a little bit different if, yeah, Larry Warbass or Lawrence Tendam or... 
any any number of the you know big big road names who have gone over to gravel were in that race. I mean, that would be cool, right? Yeah. No, I mean it's it's cool, and I think there's just I think a lot of you know every time you start breaking a field into categories like one does in road racing or cyclocross or mountain biking, you're always going to have people who feel like it's unfair. And I think there is a certain thrill that comes with being on the same start line as the pros, but at the same time, like there's a reason categories exist. And I think it's generally good to try and be in a group of people who are going to be competitive with you. I think, uh, I think it when done correctly results in a better user experience. And I think, People, again, you kind of look at gravel as this escape from those things, but eventually I think it's going to become more and more clear that it would be more fun uh, broken into categories. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I mean, like, they're going to have to separate the distances better, for sure. Because, like, I imagine it won't be long until we see some kind of, like, gravel drama where there's riders in the 100 pacing riders from the 200 and like that whole thing that happened with Lauren DeCrescenzo where she had, you know, a whole team of men pacing her for the women's race. I I imagine like at some point as the prize money grows for gravel, there's going to be more issues with having the fields, the distances and also the fields all racing on the course at the same time with very limited ability to moderate that or have some kind of like commissaire yeah it's especially tricky to have any kind of yeah enforcement on those roads just the way i mean they're so far out and it's such a long race maybe they just need drones like tons and tons of little drones just following the race i don't know that that might violate the spirit of gravel abby (laughs) you know what they they did that that uh preserves the spirit of gravel though in my opinion was take away arrow bars because like, since when is putting aero bars on a gravel bike? How is that the spirit of gravel? Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally okay with them getting rid of them. I, the point was more that it's just like, yeah, cycling, road cycling did that 20 years ago. I mean, they again, they, they did sort of try this with the Tour de France, right? Like, this was a big, <laughs> this was the thing. It was like this big achievement, like this incredible journey across France with these 12-hour stages. And over time, they were rapidly like, you know what would be better is if we just rode into a city and did some laps of the city so everybody could watch these people bike race. Um, which yeah. is, so we're going to yeah, freeze a, a Cosmo, like Han Solo style. And then <laughs> in like 75 years, he can go to Unbound. <laughs> it's, it's just going to be like your standard bike race. Yeah, it's, with some dirt. It's going to be a big, big post-Tour de France classic. You know, it'll, it'll replace yeah. San Sebastian. All right, enough about Unbound, and regardless of uh, uh, opinions on regulations and mud, congrats to Keegan Swenson, who outsprinted Peter Vakoch and Lachlan Morton, and congrats to Carolyn Schiff, who won by like, 15 minutes. Uh, she left uh, defending champion Sofia Gomez Viafane behind and did not look back, uh, finished way ahead of her, and Sarah Sturm took third. So congrats to them on winning a race in awful conditions, which... Uh, at least it made for pretty just wacky, cool videos of people riding through the mud. All right, let's do a quick break of talking about races that have happened and races that are to come to talk about the news of the day, news of the weekend on the women's side. Abby, what is the big news story of the weekend on the women's side that uh, 
is less savory in nature. Yeah, actually, uh, as we're recording today, so Sunday morning, the news came out that Sherry Bossett tested positive for a drug that is used primarily with breast cancer, I believe. Um, it's the same thing that Toon Arts, the cyclocross rider on Trek Bawas, uh, tested posit- positive for a year ago, I believe it was. Um, and so she was tested after she won a stage, the third stage of Tour de Romandy, and her A and B po- samples both came back positive. Um She's a really incredible young Belgian rider, 22 years old, on Canyon SRAM. She's been on that team since 20, since last year. This is her second year on the team. Uh, before that, she was on the Next Gen U23 team and is a really promising rider both on the road and on the track. She actually recently like a couple weeks ago, won the Madison at the Milton World Cup with her partner, uh, Lada Kopecky. I don't know if you've you've heard of her. Um, <laughs> so a pretty big blow to Kopecky, who was definitely eyeing that Olympic gold medal with Bussa as her partner, but also a blow to women's cycling because this isn't very normal for for on the road i think there's been a couple positives in cyclocross um in the last couple years but it's not very normal that a female road racer test positive not that it's not happening not that there's not doping i i don't i don't know whether or not it's happening but it would be naive to think that there was no (laughs) doping going on um i think like given the history of the sport but uh it's rare that it's rare that a, a female road cyclist, professional cyclist, test positive. And they get tested pretty regularly, uh, especially, you know, when they win a race, which is how Sherry tested positive in France. And, yeah, I think this is a pretty um, – I think it's safe to say that this shook the women's professional cycling peloton and fan base a bit this this morning when the news came out. So it's, that's what I was going to ask about was, is, uh, you know, years ago, uh, Mariana Voss was like, you know, I, I never get tested. Uh, so maybe we should do some more testing. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to ever call a doping positive good, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, I think it's, it's good to catch people. Uh, and I think, like you said earlier, given the history of the sport, it's almost certain someone somewhere is trying something and, Maybe some people who are thinking about trying something are dissuaded somewhat when people do get caught. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what the testing frequency is like. I don't know if it's, I'm assuming it's gotten better since it was publicly complained about by the greatest rider in history. Um, but I definitely disappointing, but also kind of tempered with a, well, at least, you know, there is some, 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 something out there to say, hey, we are testing and we are catching people, uh, assuming, you know, everything is okay with this test and it wasn't, you know, tampered with or any of the other, yeah. (laughs) I think it'll be interesting, um, Sherry and her manager on Monday, so the day that you're listening to this podcast, are going to have a press conference and I think it'll be interesting to see what she has to say because Tunarts has been adamant that it was a contaminated substance the reason that he tested positive and there are some kind of 
spooky similarities between the two cases. And so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in the coming days with this. Um, I know many women in the professional Peloton that are tested, you know, pretty frequently. Um, and so I don't think it's a case of like, okay, the women aren't tested. So that's why we don't have positives. I think it's, you know, follow the money. And as the money grows in women's cycling, we might see more of this, unfortunately. Um, and I think that that's the reason why people were pretty upset by this news because women's cycling has always had doping positives, um, but they've been rare because women can't really afford to dope. Um, there's there's always been like some kind of tie to a coach or a husband or a boyfriend or something like that. And um, I think in in this situation, depending what the news that comes out tomorrow and in the coming days is it's like women's cycling is growing in popularity. It's growing in professionalism. The salaries are higher. The teams have more money. And so there's a lot more of the men's cycling of decades ago situation going on in the women's Peloton right now. So it's, it's like a rough, a rough day. Um, in terms of like, okay, what does this mean for the sport going forward? For those wondering what Abby meant when she said spooky similarities, one of those similarities is that the Tunert's positive came uh, in Flamanville in Normandy, which is where uh, Bosut was the stage before she tested positive. Uh, the a stage had finished in Flamanville. So both of those riders testing positive for the same thing uh, within a day of having been in Flamanville in, uh, in Normandy, which is, yeah, it's strange. It's what it is. Yeah. Which like, she obviously was tested because she won the race. Um, so maybe if they'd tested the whole Peloton, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, but that's spooky. <laughs> like tinfoil hat. <laughs> Cosmo is like, he was the tinfoil hat and now it's Abby. Yeah. I, I, like, I like that it gets to get passes around a little bit. All right. Let's talk about what's ahead this week. Abby, why is there no women's world tour race this week? Oh, because the women's tour, the the British stage race was canceled this year. Um, they're having some funding problems, some lack of sponsorship. So they've, they weren't able to put on the race this year. It's um, a long running race on the women's side and also one of the most well run, even though they've struggled to have live coverage in the past. It's, it's a big bummer that the race isn't going on this this year, but hopefully they'll be back in the future. We'll see, but it does mean that we have like a two week break in the women's world tour calendar with Tour de Suisse, the next women's race on the seventeenth of June. Yeah, it's a huge bummer, and it's I think I have loved watching. The, like the amount of coverage we've had of women's world tour races and even non-world tour races like touring it had like 80 90k of coverage every day like it's it's a pretty solid product uh this women's bike racing thing uh, even with sd works dominance like it's been really cool to to get all this this coverage and it's kind of a bummer that you know i feel like the women's tour sponsors from previously are kind of kicking themselves like oh man you know, maybe we uh maybe we made a mistake here yeah, and like the women's tour last year had had live coverage and the stages were super exciting and it came down to like a 
it came, came down to bonus seconds and Elisa Longo Borghini pulled out the sprint of her life to get like three bonus seconds and win the overall on the final stage. So it was a really exciting race. So the fact that they can't follow that up with another year is a huge bummer. Yeah. I feel like when you talk to riders, they love this race. The fan response out on the roads is always pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. They, all the schools that line all of the courses, they let the kids out of school when the riders go by. So you'll, you'll be like riding along and then there'll be like a hundred screaming kids on the side of the road, which is actually terrifying, but (laughs) is cool to see. Uh, yeah. Huge bummer. Huge bummer that the race is not running this year. The race that will be going on this week is the men's tour de Suisse where Remco Evenable is expected to get back to competition. Uh, a lot of fun art racing, I think for Yumbo talk of Roglic. Not sure about that. Uh, American superstar Nielsen Palace for EF. Keep an eye on him. Yeah, lots of riders ahead of the tour who have not decided to go to the Dauphiné. And I feel like the the, the Suisse, like there was a stretch there during the Froome years and, and actually a little bit before that too where it was it was like clearly the lesser of the two tune-ups. And then in the past few years, it's gotten, it's gotten some big names. Like Garen Thomas won last year. Uh, Bernal won the year that he won the Tour de France. So it's not just the Rui Costa, Simon Spielach show anymore. Uh, although uh, I must admit that I really loved seeing Rui Costa in, in Switzerland form because he was a real he was a real superstar in the Swiss races. Yeah, lots, lots to look forward to with the Tour de Suisse, and I think the placeholders this week will talk more about that. So obviously you should tune in. But first you should tune in to Wheel Talk. And then you should tune in to Geek Warning, and then you can tune in to Placeholders. We're not we're not still trying to tell people not to watch Geek Warning so that we can be the most popular. Yeah, yeah, we got to keep that Just... title, right? Uh, no, I have to be impartial. Um, <laughs> Ronan's got some Geek Warning bonus stuff coming this week. There's lots to listen to in between now and the weekend where there will be a brief overlap of World Tour races, which everybody loves. And then you'll get to hear from us again. So I hope you enjoyed the show today. I hope you'll have a chance to watch all the racing and listen to all the great podcasts over the next week and we will be in your earphones again in a week until then thanks abby thanks cosmo we will see you listeners we will see you podcasters next week 